0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles to the readings for this afternoon in connection with Lord's Day 45. We first of all have an Old Testament reading from 2 Samuel 7, verse one After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, this is David speaking, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, As they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish His kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man?" O Sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O Sovereign Lord! There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel? the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made Concerning your servant and his house, do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O Sovereign Lord, You are God. Your words are trustworthy, and You have promised these good things to Your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of Your servant, that it may continue forever in Your sight. For You, O Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with Your blessing, the house of Your servant will be blessed forever. And we go to the New Testament. To Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to, to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. May God bless the reading of his word. This afternoon, we continue in the Heidelberg Catechism. We're looking at Lord's Day 45 this afternoon. Question 116. Why is prayer necessary for Christians? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness which God requires of us. Moreover, God will give His grace and the Holy Spirit only to those who constantly And with heartfelt longing, ask Him for these gifts and thank Him for them. What belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by Him? First, we must from the heart call upon the one true God only, who has revealed Himself in His Word for all that He has commanded us to pray. Second, we must thoroughly know our need and misery, so that we may humble ourselves before God. Third, We must rest on this firm foundation that, although we do not deserve it, God will certainly hear our prayer for the sake of Christ our Lord, as he has promised us in his word. What has God commanded us to ask of him? All the things we need for body and soul, as included in the prayer which Christ our Lord himself taught us. What is the Lord's Prayer? And there follows the prayer which we already read from Matthew chapter 6. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, how are things going with your, your prayer life? I think a lot of times that's a question that we'd rather not answer or think about. We're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been bought with the blood of the Lamb. We know about our only comfort in life and death. Sure knowledge and firm confidence by God's grace, it's ours. but yet. When it comes to prayer, there's always this gap between what it should be and what it is. Perhaps even the younger brothers and sisters can relate to this. In fact, I'm sure you can. It's bedtime, and you're praying to the God who made heaven and earth and everything in them. You're praying, you're speaking with the King of the universe. And then you fall asleep right in the middle of it. Or I think we can all relate to the tendency that all our prayers start to sound the same. Now, Fathers who have to pray at the beginning and end of each meal, they start to use stock prayers with stock phrases which can quickly lead to formalism and just a a going through the motions. And this often gets passed on down through the generations. And so the Lord's Prayer too can be rattled off in such a way that its meaning and that its purpose are lost to us. We don't even think about it anymore when we say it. And then we have all kinds of questions that come with prayer too. Should I kneel when I pray? Do I have to close my eyes? Should I pray just to the Father? Or can I also directly address the Lord Jesus Christ? Can I speak to the Holy Spirit when I pray? Do I always have to mention the name Of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of every prayer? And we could go on. All the problems we have with prayer and all the many questions that that arise leads us to an inescapable conclusion. Prayer is not something that's natural for us. We are not born as people who automatically and without a second thought speak to our Creator. So, brothers and sisters, we have to be taught how to pray. And that's why our catechism devotes the last section to this very important topic. Now, just because it's the last thing in the catechism, that doesn't mean that it's of the least value. Rather, this is a very clear case of the last being of primary importance. Everything up to this point has been important, but we learn in our Lord's Day this afternoon that prayer is in a certain way the starting point of our thankfulness. God wants those who are bought with the precious blood of his Son to be thankful, and he wants them to express their thankfulness in the first place through prayer. So God's word, as it's summarized in the Catechism and confessed by the church, is therefore proclaimed to you this afternoon with this theme the one true God commands his thankful people to pray. And we'll see that first of all there's a profound need for prayer, second, a proper attitude for prayer, and then finally a perfect model for prayer. Well, first of all, the profound need. I think if we think about it, we can all agree that we have to be taught how to pray. But there's a, there's a question that should come before that. Do we need to pray? can't Christians get by without it? Or perhaps can we do it just once in a while if, if the time is right and and if we, we feel like it? You know, that kind of thinking, that that's very common today. That type of thinking fits right in with a consumer approach to Christianity. You can see this if you ever look in these uh, Christian book catalogs. You can find uh, for instance, a 1 minute Bible for those people who can't spend who can only spend 1 minute a day reading their Bible. There's the the 1 minute Bible for students. It advertises it says between classes, homework and extracurricular activities, what teenager has time for devotions? So you can imagine what prayer is like for people who read a 1 minute Bible. But when something terrible happens in their life, then God had better be there for him. That's when they need prayer, only when it suits them. God has become a backup, someone who is only there for emergencies. Prayer is sort of like a 911 emergency number. Well, the Scriptures won't have any of that, so neither will our Catechism. The Catechism says in the first question to answer that prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness which God requires of us, the most important part. Now, somebody might say, "Hold on one second. Is prayer even more important than keeping the law?" You know, you might almost get the idea that the law is more important. After all, it does come first in the Catechism. First, the section on the law, and and now a section on prayer. But the Catechism doesn't work that way. Just because something is first in order, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily first in importance. We see very clearly in this Lord's Day that prayer is even more important than keeping the law as a way to show our thankfulness to the Lord. But here we have to be very careful. We have to keep the idea out of our heads that you know one person prays and another person keeps the law to be thankful, and then, and then the one who, who's just praying is doing the better job as if we could make a choice, you know, keeping the law or prayer. And then if you really want to be thankful, choose prayer. No. Uh, The keeping of the law and prayer, they belong together, like two sides of one coin. The reason the Catechism puts the law first is that the preaching of the law logically leads us to prayer. When we hear God's law explained to us This leads us to ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we can keep the law, that we can show ourselves to be thankful. So there's this profound need for prayer. It's been said that that prayer is to the spiritual man what oxygen is to the physical man. Just as we need oxygen for our bodies, so we also need prayer for our souls. There's a lot of truth in that. Without prayer, we cannot show the thanks to God that we ought to. We get stalled in the process of sanctification, of more and more becoming who we are. If we try to live a godly and holy life and ignore prayer and pretend that prayer is optional, an add-on item, then we're on the wrong road. And we're just deceiving ourselves if we think that we really do care about godliness and holiness. Quite simply put, you can't be a Christian without prayer. We need it. And that's even more so because as we confess in the Catechism, God will give His grace and His Holy Spirit only to those who ask Him for these gifts and thank Him for them. We have to constantly be going to God and asking Him for His grace and Spirit. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Pray continually. That means not just at the end of the day on the edge of your bed, not just around the supper table, continually although in many instances it's appropriate to do so, you don't have to pray sitting down. You don't have to pray kneeling. You can pray as you do your work. You can pray as you're driving. We can pray at any time. In fact, the Apostles' command means that we must. And that not only means asking for one thing or another, we can also pray to God continually in thankfulness. Thank Him when you receive something good from His hand. Thank Him when you're, you're awestruck by something you see in, in creation. Give thanks in all circumstances. Find the good and the beautiful and thank the Lord in prayer. We can't also ask the Lord for things. We can't leave that out. In fact, we are commanded to ask for certain things. We have to ask God for His grace. We have to ask Him for the work of His Holy Spirit in our lives. Does that mean that before we pray, we don't have the Holy Spirit? Well, to answer that, we have to keep in mind where we're at in the Catechism. We're in the last section about our thankfulness. You could also say it's about sanctification. We're speaking here as believers in the Lord Jesus. Believers who have been given the gift of faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. That means that we're speaking here in question answer 116 about the ongoing, continuing gift of the Holy Spirit. That He continues to work in us. It's this that we have to pray for constantly and with heartfelt longing. So then you see, don't you, that the Holy Spirit is essential to our prayers. We must pray for Him to keep on doing His work in us, that He will draw us further along the road of holiness. But there's more because we learn from Scripture that when it comes to prayer, He also works for us. Now well, that's clear from Romans eight twenty-six to 27 in Romans 8, verse 26, we read, "...in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness." We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. That's Romans eight twenty six to 27 That's comforting, isn't it? Because this is so, we can go to God with confidence. When we stumble in our prayers, when we struggle to find the right words, it doesn't matter. Because God hears us through the intercession of the Holy Spirit. He will give us His grace and spirit. He will lead us further in our lives before His face. But this can only take place when we do pray. When we turn to God realizing that there is no other to whom we can turn. We have a profound need for prayer because we need God. That's why there's this command to pray constantly and with with heartfelt longing. Do you know that heartfelt longing? That yearning for God, waiting upon Him? Like we sang in Psalm 25. This requires work. It's not something that can be left for one minute in our day. We have to be conscientious and apply ourselves to improving our prayer life. What's the best way to do that? Immerse yourself in the Word, brothers and sisters. Your prayer life cannot exist in isolation from God's Word. And if our prayers are simply repeated over and over again in insincerity and mindlessness, simply out of habit, not giving any thought... Brothers and sisters, this needs to be rooted out. That's because there's also this proper attitude for prayer. We're going to look at that in our second point. Sometimes you hear people say that you can come to God just as you are. God will unconditionally accept you no matter what. Well, in a certain sense, that's true. God will accept all sinners who come to him. However, we have to add some words. The words, In repentance and true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only sinners who come to God in repentance and true faith will be accepted by Him. And so there is really no such thing as an unqualified, unconditional acceptance by God of sinners. That means you can't come to God with disrespect. You can't come before God's face with arrogance or with cursing and bitterness and expect that God is going to take you no matter what, unconditionally. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is very clear that those who would come before the Almighty, the Holy God, they have to come before Him with the right frame of mind, with the right attitude. We see this quite plainly in the passage that we read from 2 Samuel 7. If we pay careful attention to King David's prayer from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, then then several things are striking. We can learn from these things. First of all, notice the way that David addresses God. David was very close to God, but he doesn't speak to God as if God is his buddy, as if God is his friend to whom he can say whatever he wants in whatever way he wants. Instead, David's words are dripping with fear and respect. He calls him Sovereign Lord. Literally, the the Hebrew text there says, Lord Yahweh. A term of respect. David uses that term throughout this prayer, from the beginning to the end. There is no other Lord Yahweh. With no doubt, David calls upon the one true God who has revealed himself in his word. And he does so fully recognizing who God is and who David is as his creature. So he comes before the Lord, Lord Yahweh, in humility. That too, that's clear right from the start. David says, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me thus far? Those who would come before Yahweh in arrogance will be cast out. God cannot stand the proud. God cannot stand the arrogant man. David learned this the hard way. He had it in his head to build a house for God. God told him to back off. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? But even though he was given this rebuke, David was still blessed with rich promises, messianic promises. And so David is struck with awe and wonder. And that's the attitude with which he draws near to God in prayer. Those promises were all fulfilled. And now we are even richer than David. We have the realization of those promises. We've been blessed with salvation in Christ. We've been blessed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we think about it, this ought to humble us. This ought to create in us a spirit of thankfulness. It ought to give us the right attitude for prayer. Isn't it true that when we we consider the fact that God's own Son came to Earth, that He suffered, that He died for us, when we reflect on that, then we are reminded of our own sin and misery. We're reminded of our need. We're reminded that we were alienated from God by our own fault, by our treason. But now we've been reconciled to Him in Christ. We ought to fall down on our knees in thankful adoration. Who are we? We ought to be recognizing our own utter inability to please God. We ought to be awestruck. You know, if you've ever been up to the Salmon Glacier on the border of B.C. and the, the very southern Alaskan panhandle, I think you probably know what it means to be awestruck. And humbled. Up on the, the salmon glacier this is, is this huge flowing sheet of ice stretching out for kilometers in the midst of the mighty coast mountains. You feel very small when you see that. You feel struck with awe. Now, something like that makes us awestruck, how much more shouldn't we be in awe of the one who made it? How can we come before him? in a cavalier manner, as if it were a small thing to speak to the King of creation. And even greater than the salmon glacier, if we think about it, even greater is the salvation that we've been freely given. How can our attitude be anything but humility? But we need more than just humility to come before Lord Yahweh. We also need faith. We need to believe in the one true God only and call upon Him as He commands us to do. James is very clear on this point. Chapter 1 of his letter, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord, He's a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. Brothers and sisters, this means a doubt about God's existence and love, those things are sin. Prayer is pointless if you have any doubts about God, his ability to care for you as his child. It may make you feel good to pray, but then so would talking to your dog. If we desire to be heard by God when we pray, then we can't approach God like we're making a gamble. Saying in effect, well, you know, I don't know if you're really there, and I don't know if the way you're, you're describing the Bible is, is true, but if you are, just in case, that's not the way of faith, that's not the way of a prayer which will please God and will be heard by Him. There is no room in the world, in in the Bible for buffet prayers. Trying out different addresses till we get the one that works. Till the one that, that makes us feel good and full. The scriptures are very clear on this point. There is only one legitimate address for prayer. The one true God. And He has to be approached in faith. And so it's not a simple faith in some vanilla kind of God. We are speaking about the only true God. He will only hear our prayer when we approach Him as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we have His sure promise that, we, that He will hear us when we come as such. We find this promise in such places as John 14, verses 13 and 14. Read there, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, the fact that He has promised to hear us doesn't mean that we always get what we want. Our God knows better than we do what's best for us. Think about that. That takes humility to acknowledge that as well. God is the overflowing fountain of all good. We have to trust that He will always do what's best for us, even when it isn't obvious to us. That's part of the firm foundation that the Catechism talks about in answer 117. He knows what we need. And so He also teaches us how to pray. And that's why He gives us a perfect model for prayer. You see that in our third point. Well, we noted right at the beginning that prayer doesn't come naturally to us, and so there's this need for instruction about how to pray. Now this instruction about how to pray, it comes to us throughout the whole Bible. If you want to learn how to pray, it's not in the first place a matter of learning by doing. Instead, it's a matter of closely studying the Word. Scripture and prayer, like I said before, belong together. And when we study the Word, we find many places which gives, give us the instruction we need. Now I could refer you to the, the book of Psalms. In the, in the Psalms, we find many instances of David and, and other psalmists. That they're addressing God in prayer. And as we, we look at those examples, they can be very instructive for us. Our catechism could have taken such an approach, but it wouldn't have been very concise. Instead, we look to the prayer that the Christian church has always held up as the perfect model for prayer. The prayer which our Lord himself taught us, the Lord's Prayer. Our Lord Jesus recognized the need for instruction on, the, on prayer, and we find some of his instruction in, in what we read from Matthew 6. Now, As I mentioned, our reading from this chapter takes place in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. This section is devoted to the topic of prayer. The Lord begins by instructing those who are listening to it. He's instructing them with the right attitude. Here we go back to what we just learned. And the Lord Jesus does take it further. He says that prayer is not a matter of proud public displays. It's a matter between God and the believer. And so prayer is is also not a matter of many words and vain repetitions. A good prayer is not necessarily long. Nor are good prayers those that are repeated over and over and over again with no thought to what's being said. We're told not to be like pagans or Gentiles, not to be like the hypocrites. Why? Because our Heavenly Father knows what we need. Not what we want. He knows what we need before we even pray. We pray sincerely when we take into account the fact that God is all-knowing, that God is omniscient, that God is sovereign. We have to know God rightly, to pray rightly. So how then should we pray? This then is how you should pray, we read in the NIV in Matthew 6. However, a better translation would be something like we find in the RSV. Pray then like this, or The King James, After this manner, therefore pray ye. Like this or in this manner. We ought to note well that the Lord Jesus Christ does not say, Pray this prayer every time you pray. Repeat this prayer over and over and over again. He doesn't say that. That would directly contradict what he had just said. But he also doesn't say, When you don't know what to pray, use this prayer. In fact, it seems to be the case that our Lord Jesus never intended for this prayer to be anything other than a model, an example of how to pray. There are several reasons why we can say this. First of all, because he says, pray like this. Second, elsewhere he commands us to pray in his name. But he himself, he doesn't do that in this prayer. And finally, as a third point, we can also note the differences between the Lord's Prayer as we have it in Matthew 6 and as we have it in Luke 11. They're different. They're not the same. If we pray the Lord's Prayer, which one should we use? All of this seems to indicate that the Lord Jesus didn't give this prayer as a ready-to-use form prayer, such as the, the prayers that we find in the back of the Book of Praise. Instead, He primarily gave it to his church as an example, as a perfect model. Perhaps an illustration will will help you to understand. We can compare the Lord's Prayer to a a model house. Now, Maybe if you, you go to a home builder, perhaps they might show you a small little model house. You can see what the house will look like. Maybe you can even take the roof off and you can see all the rooms inside the house. You can see what the house is going to look like on a small scale before you decide to build it. Well, that model house wasn't meant to be lived in. It's much too small, of course. Instead, it was intended to give an idea of what the house should look like. Well, the Lord's Prayer is like that model house. It wasn't really intended to be be lived in, so to speak. The Lord's Prayer is there primarily for us as a model to teach us all the things that we need for body and soul. And again, we should realize that the focus here is on our needs rather than our wants. It's an important distinction to keep in mind when we pray. We need certain things. We need our food, our clothing, our shelter. We need our health. And there are other things that are just luxuries. You know, boats, home entertainment systems, and and so on. The Lord's Prayer is there to help us make this distinction. To teach us what we truly need for body and soul. It's also there to teach us the proper attitude to God. And we'll hear about that, God willing, next Sunday. It's also there to teach us the proper attitude about ourselves. And, of course, also about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Prayer sets the pattern for us in our prayer lives, that we can truly show ourselves thankful both with our lips and with our lives. And so, brothers and sisters, here we are again at the section on prayer. Some of you have been through this countless times. Some of you, maybe it's the first time. But every time, again, it's good to pay attention We need this review. We need this reminder of how to pray. We need to give careful attention to the teaching of our Master, Jesus Christ. Because again, prayer is not natural. For sinful people, for weak people to pray, it's not easy. We remain weak vessels. We're prone to break and to crack. So by the grace of the Holy Spirit, Let's learn prayer from our Master. He will lead us. He will guide us into the fear of God's holy name. He will teach us what we need to know and to know our need. And when we take this instruction seriously, then we can also have the comforting hope that the day is coming when prayer will be a perfected art. We can look forward with eager expectation to a time when prayer will be the essence of our existence. Praying today, praying tomorrow, we will be praying forever in glorious perfection. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.